for action! 23 Airzone Podcast it is. Pleasure to welcome you to AR Zone podcast number 23. Joining me today are AR Zone admins Tim Geyer. Now you listen here. He's not the Messiah. He's a very naughty boy. And Roger Yates. Hi. Hello. Also joining us today is David Steibel, who is a Canadian theorist specialising in animal ethics. David has been an advocate for other animals for more than 22 years, has published numerous articles pertaining to the liberation of all sentient beings, and is well known for developing a new theory of animal rights, which he terms best caring, as outlined in The Rights of Animal Persons, which can be found on David's blog site. David, welcome to AR Zone. Thanks for joining us today. Pleasure to be here. David, your theory of animal rights questions conventional theories of rights based mainly in intuition. Could you please explain how and why you developed your theory and why you feel it's so important? Well, I've been dedicated uh, to animal rights now for many years. I uh, went vegan in 1988 and I'm 44 years old. Throughout the years, I've tried to come up with a theory that would answer the toughest questions that I could put to it as a theorist and I've ended up changing views quite a bit over time and I can't go into it now but I'm developing uh, newer variations on my views as well because I've detected severe flaws in the theory of best caring which I've sort of uh, put together in a few journal articles that I have. I can't really go into it but uh, the theory is flawed and uh, it's not a flaw that's limited to my own theory it relates to a flaw that I found in me- pretty much a large spectrum of the main theories that are out there and uh, so it's a bit hush-hush the new developments but uh, I am very excited about them the thing about intuitionism what it means is it's not someone trying to prognosticate the future by looking into a crystal ball it's not uh, women's intuition, uh, quite apart from the fact that I'm not a woman or anything. Intuitionism is a very technical name in ethical theory, and it refers to the view that in order to get ethics off the ground, we need to start with a ground that itself is not rationally defended, and that that is acceptable. So basically, intuitionism is the view that we need to begin with assumptions. That's very tricky. And a lot of people, with some reflection, repudiate intuitionism entirely. And they end up being skeptics about the entire moral theoretical enterprise. Uh, I don't think we need to be that desperate, although it's quite possible. 
I'm fooling myself. I've certainly fooled myself before. But just to give you a taste of why intuitionism is problematic, first of all, the intuition as assumption is not evidence. Whereas when we look to theory for guidance, try to think about ourselves, uh, the reasoning isn't going on there. People reason from their intuitions, for example, the intuition that we should accept utilitarianism or a rights theory such as Regan's theory, very important theories, of course, but uh, they're not really based in evidence. To me, I think that makes rational debate impossible at a fundamental level, and it scares me. It sort of gives me the idea that you can't be taught intuitionism or a one view that's intuited by looking to evidence, it would be more along the lines of indoctrination. You could regard an intuition as, uh, in fairness as a prejudice. You could say that it fosters us versus them thinking, because there's not just one intuit set of intuitions in the world, there's intuitionists in various camps, rights camps, utilitarian camps, uh, feminist ethic of care camps, and so on. Just a few more factors. Uh, you could say that intuitionism is jumping to conclusions at the begin before you even conclude anything about practice. So it kind of gives the appearance of starting with premises, but it's really beginning with conclusions. And just a few more things. Given its irrationalist nature, it's possible to be afraid of the possibility that intuitionism can lead to conflict, even severe conflict that can't be peaceably settled using reasoning. Intuitionism is also problematic because people sometimes come to the ethical beliefs they have based on desires that they have, not based on trying to find truth or looking at what the evidence reveals, that kind of thing. And we all know people who desire to eat meat or to wear fur. And so they might come to the view that animals are essentially tools for humans to use just to satisfy their desires. People do conclude things on the basis of desires, so that's another danger with intuitionism. Intuitionism is very difficult territory because I think it's rather easier to critique intuitionism and it's much harder to try to come up with an alternative. I don't know if I'm entirely successful or even successful at all in coming up with an alternative, but I've made attempts to do so using or trying to uh, stake out different types of cognition. Since intuitionism is in the manner of assumptions, it doesn't seem like a genuine kind of cognition to me. But uh, science, in its attempt to describe how we know the world has very conservatively emphasized the five senses through vision, through hearing, tasting, touching, and smelling. But in fact, it must be the case, I believe, that we have different kinds of cognition than just the five senses. Well, there's the imagination, and it would be very tempting to dismiss the imagination because it's so unreliable and so variable among different individuals. And yet, if someone cannot imagine what it is for another to suffer, then I wonder if anything like a full or even substantial sense of the suffering another has had by the person contemplating it. Affective cognition, 
is something that I am postulating as an alternative to intuition. Affect comes in a few different forms. There's feelings as one part of our affect, A-F-F-E-C-T, and then there's desires, another aspect of our affect. It seems to me that we can have feeling cognition, that is awareness of our feelings, and that we can have desiring cognition, which is awareness of our desires. And I always point out to people that I'm aware of what, how I feel and what I'm feeling, not by seeing the feelings or hearing them or smelling them, tasting them or touching them, but through feeling itself. That's how I'm aware of them. So although our intellectual tradition consigns feelings and desires to the intellectual dustbin as far as cognition or awareness goes, I think that's a mistake. I think that we are aware of our feelings. And it cannot be through the five senses, as it were. Now, supposing we have this alternative way of being aware of the world, could it yield any useful points about ethics? If we think about suffering, then perhaps we could uh, come to the idea that something is repugnant if we're aware of the suffering as it is. And suffering, it seems to me, as it is, is something that occurs to an individual, sentient being. When it comes to other individuals, I'm sad to say that I'm restricted to my rather feeble imagination. And yet I think that imagination, the moral imagination, is so crucial. And that people with the sense of suffering are much more liable to get someone to care than an abstraction called suffering. It's a phenomenon involving pain or other manifestations, just getting lost in words and abstractions. I'm not saying that words and abstractions aren't needed. I'm just saying that they're not the only thing, and by no means are they sufficient uh, from what I can tell. I am trying to write an animal rights ethics book where I try to answer some of the many objections that come my way. Okay, David, I wonder if I could ask you for some clarification of what you just said, um, in the sense that you said that you didn't entirely oppose intuitionism, although you did describe it in one journal as unjustified beliefs. So you then presented a, quite a comprehensive critique of it. So I'm wondering what part of intuitionism you know, do you rescue, as it were, or can you use, do you think? I don't think that I indicated that intuitionism is desirable. I think it's very difficult to have what could be called a post-intuitionist ethic, but uh, you know, uh, there, in many ways, uh, I think that intuitionism can be admirable. I would much ha rather have someone who's an intuitionist and who stands up for the rights of animals rather than someone who says, "Well, look, intuitionism is, is, is very problematic, and we can bring out." an intellectual laundry list of ways that it's theoretically problematic. So to hell with it. We'll just uh, give up on the idea of ethics and we'll say, we don't know. We'll throw up our hands and we'll say to the factory farmers, well, 
you have an intuition that you're right, I have an intuition that you're wrong, let's call it a day. I, I can't show anything, I can't prove anything. Not that you I'm just, claiming you to You just get into a stalemate it. situation, really, isn't it? It's a stalemate, and also ethical practice never gets off the ground. It gets sucked into a void of doubt, indecision, almost nihilism, really. So I admire intuitionism or intuitionists for what they do, but I think that for the reasons that I give in my critiques of it, that uh, we should try to get beyond it. Yeah, understood. Now, if, if I may ask the second question, this this is becoming our tr traditional second question in our podcast, uh, David. I'm going to ask it in the spirit of Ronnie Lee, who cannot be with us today. As you probably know, Ronnie Lee is the co-founder of the Animal Liberation Front in, uh, in Britain. He became vegan in 1971. Now, you said that your vegan adventure began in 1988. So can you tell us how and why you came to live vegan, please? Well, here in Toronto, Canada, we have a place called the World's Biggest Bookstore. And there's no way of verifying if it's in fact the World's Biggest Bookstore, but you kind of just accept that sign. I was wandering around the philosophy section one day when I was just finished high school. It was the summer. And I came across Animal Liberation by Peter Singer. And somehow uh, it was like this tractor beam locked onto me from the book and I was pulled in rather better fate than a fish, I might add. And so I read it, and this is actually kind of funny. Um, I was reading through it, and as you know, of course, it has so many harrowing details about how animals are tortured in factory farming and, you know, just the whole process. The book is so frank. So I was reading it, and I was so appalled, and I was living with my parents at that time. I was a youth. So uh, I stepped out of my bedroom, and I said, you know, Ma, the way these animals are treated, you know, and I was just starting a sentence, right? And so Mom finished my sentence for me, uh, Doris Stivell. She says, uh, so you want to be vegetarian now? Okay. And then from that day forward, I didn't tell her she finished my thought because, uh, well, I, for whatever reason, and she made vegetarian food for me from that point on. You see... Uh, I have a sister, Miriam, uh, the eldest of three kids, and she had been vegetarian for some years now, and my mother had cooked vegetarian for her. And it turns out that my mom was kind of being vegetarian conscious vicariously through her kids. And a few years later, this was also a resonance with, well, the philosopher Tom Regan. He said that the death of the family dog activated his heart about not eating meat. It was the same with my mom. She, uh, Licky, it's a ridiculous name, uh, Licky died and <laughs> she started saying, yeah, she said, uh, well, what's the difference between this dog and, you know, the cows that I eat? Of course, she couldn't come up with her. And my dad, who was, well, in fairness, he was really hostile to vegetarianism early on. And so I thought he was the last person who would change. But uh, in a few years' time, Diet for New America was floating around the house, and he changed. I couldn't believe it. So I was very lucky to have a lot of support then. And I'm embarrassed to say that my uh, transition was more gradual than the evidence warranted. Uh, I should have gone vegan right away. But uh, I guess I didn't know enough about 
I didn't even go vegetarian right away. I, I, I knocked off fish from the diet as the last form of meat that I ate because I had these stupid prejudices about fish. My dad actually ran a fish and chip store, and I spent a lot of my youth working there. You know, I come from a working class background, and so then I started being vegan from there and realizing how imperative being vegan is when you kind of try to drink in the evidence as best you can. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's a very interesting story. And um, I'm just wondering whether the family also had brothers and sisters of Licky who were Lai and Runny, maybe, um, uh, <laughs> a, a war key, perhaps. Um, but um, go, go, going back well, to the idea... Frosty. Of, oh, <laughs> there was of Frosty. Course. Yeah, frosty and friendly and friendly and frosty and friendly. Um, <laughs> I just I just wonder about this thing about the transition from vegetarian and vegan. That there's a lot of discourse at the moment in the movement in relation to how and why people go vegetarian and or vegan. And you know, usually it's it's one transformation from one to the other, as in your case. Now, you were saying that in a sense the book animal liberation, you know, would have or should have tipped you towards veganism earlier. But in some senses, the, the implication from that book is not veganism, it's vegetarianism, isn't it? And so consequently, is there, is there something to be said then for the prevalence at the moment for unequivocal vegan education rather than having a message which you can then translate into vegetarianism as you did through animal liberation? If, if it was saying in that book, go vegan, do you think you would have gone vegan earlier? I think that if a forceful case were made for veganism in the book, I don't know, Roger, I think there was a chance I, I could have gone vegan right away. I think you're right that we need to get across, we as an animal rights movement, that we need to get across some substantial sense of a vegan imperative. And I was looking at animal liberation the other day, in fact, and under the topic of eggs, Basically, if you have access to free-range eggs, uh, it's not ideal, but you should eat those. And if there are no free-range eggs available, then you should avoid eggs altogether. So there's a lot of quibbling, even in animal liberation itself, over the uh, dimensions of veganism. Whereas if someone were less of a utilitarian, the way Singer is, Singer, I think utilitarianism is a little bit, if you'll forgive me, uh, cold about the fate of individuals. It's capable of rationalizing medical vivisection by saying that the harms that vivisection supposedly, and I stress again, supposedly prevents, because I don't agree that it's scientifically effective, medical vivisection on animals, but utilitarians will say, well, the, the harm that it prevents outweighs the harm done to the animals. And that's very cold. It's very cold to the fate of individuals. It says they can be outweighed by units of utility, uh, units of suffering, if you will. And I think that uh, we need to be hot about individuals in the sense of being passionate about the dignity of each and every uh, sentient being. And that doesn't really come out of animal liberation as much. But I don't want to be negative, so I, let's just inject the thought that Singer started something great, uh, the modern animal liberation movement. A lot of his descriptions of factory farming and vivisection were very pioneering for the day and very far-reaching because he's such a lucid writer. 
and he passionately uh, attacks speciesism as a prejudice like sexism and racism. So I want to add how valuable his book is, but I want to share with Roger my sense that the vegan imperative, as it were, doesn't come across from animal liberation or it doesn't come across strongly enough. I know that Singer himself is a vegan and he was here in Toronto. He spoke at the University of Toronto and he said he was vegan and he kind of praised a pro-vegan message that came from the crowd. He praised it, but yeah, animal liberation, I, I don't think it's unequivocal enough about the dignity of individuals and therefore not an unambiguous about veganism itself. Understood. We, we don't really want to go there, but uh, I think um, Singer tends to describe himself as a flexible vegan, but um, we, we don't need to go there, oh, I, don't, okay. I don't think. That's interesting, Roger. Yeah, in the Toronto, in the Toronto appearance, he, he just said he was a vegan, but apparently from what you're saying, there's more to the question than meets the eye. Okay. I think he regards it more important not to offend a host than that's, that's, what, that's what I understand. Okay, that's interesting to know, and it reminds me of what was said in prior years about the Dalai Lama, that yeah. he would accept if it was offered, and which is different than cheese, I guess. And, you know, uh, but I think that in more recent years, the Dalai Lama has gone vegetarian, and presumably beyond this sort of, I don't know, smiling mm -hmm. guest of the host type of omnivorism or what have you. The only thing that I would say is that I... I and I haven't studied the issue, but the way that I read what Singer says is that he takes it from a pragmatic point of view, and that's to say that in a situation where he's somewhere where someone serves him some food product that contains something derived from another animal, his abstaining from that food product does nothing to save the life of another animal because that particular animal has already died. And so in that sense, he sees no harm done in order to be gracious to his host. Not that it's, I see. not that there's, so I, I think that's how he would describe his position. I mean, whether whether we think that that is problematic or not is a different question, but, but I think that's how he describes his position, so. That's excellent, Tim. I wasn't really aware of that, and it sort of gives us some pause, and it maybe makes Singer's opinion appear more thoughtful, which of course it is. Um, I heard somewhere, and uh, there's no citation, no nothing, but I heard that the most influential thing to do with ethics isn't theory, isn't reading, isn't any of that, it's role modeling. So mm -hmm. I wonder if we could learn more and more rigorously about the importance of role modeling, and then if we did, perhaps this choice to eat the animal who's dead and so forth uh, might appear differently. Yeah. David, I'd like to ask you about your, your views on intuition because I'm studying theory of knowledge now, and uh, yeah. one of the views in theory of knowledge is foundationalism, which says briefly yeah. that if I were to say that I know something, I have to be able to give reasons why I know it. So the example I always use is if I, if I were to say my phone is black, then I – and someone says, how do you know that your phone is black? Well, I'll say, well, I know what the color black is because of this, and then I know that what phones are because of that. And So I give all of these reasons, and I have this complicated story. And at the end of the day, we're all satisfied that I know my phone is black. But the problem with foundationalism is, is that we can't ever get to any reasons that are grounded in anything other than experience. So they're not reasons at all, in fact. 
And so is that sort of the kind of problem that you're talking about with intuition as, as you're talking about it? Because it sounds like it's connected to that to me. That's very good. Yes, Tim, I think you're quite astute in saying that the concern with intuitionism is very much related to the epistemic theories of foundationalism, coherentism, and pragmatism. Just for the listener who isn't uh, not taking philosophy and wouldn't be familiar with any of these views, and also to motivate the discussion slightly because a lot of people would say, well, of course the phone is black. You know, Why wouldn't the phone be black and so forth? I'll just motivate the problem of skepticism a tiny bit and then just say a little bit about what each of these things is. The problem of skepticism, uh, Descartes was writing in the, at the very dawn of the modern era. He pointed out that there's no way that we can prove that there isn't a very powerful being feeding us all of our perceptions or seeming perceptions. That is to say, wherever you are sitting or standing or doing whatever right now, everything that you sense around you could conceivably be fed to your mind or your brain or what have you by this very powerful deceiver. And in fact, the world could be radically different than what you perceive. We think here of the movie The Matrix, where people live in this kind of fantasy world that's being piped into their minds, but the reality is they're living in these horrible cocoons in this really dystopian kind of world. Well, to answer this question of radical doubt, various theories of knowledge have been put forward. The most straightforward theory is skepticism, that we can't have knowledge of the world because it's true, we can't prove that there's no evil deceiver and so on. The foundationalist answer is that we can start, we can take certain instances of knowledge as rock bottom basic. And in that, that's highly analogous to intuitionism. And in fact, many foundationalist epistemologists, sorry for the term epistemologist, it just means a theorist of knowledge. Epistemology is the theory of knowledge. Many foundationalist epistemologists appeal to intuitions, but then there's the coherentist view, because you see with foundationalism, you're starting with one kind of unit, one foundation, and building from there. The coherentist says, we never start from just one little foundation in isolation. No. What we need is like a web of beliefs, each supporting the other, kind of mutually reinforcing, and this coherent web of beliefs that kind of sticks together, and of course that's what cohere metaphorically is meaning here, cohering is gluing or sticking together. We need this kind of plurality of things that hang together. And a third alternative, or a fourth one, if you count skepticism as the first alternative, is pragmatism that we can't, in rather agreement with the skeptics, really know anything or be absolutely confident. And they would say, the pragmatists, well, look, there is no foundation. And this web of coherent beliefs, you have all these beliefs supporting each other, but none of them is firm. So nothing is really supported. And it all crashes like a collapsing house of cards. So the pragmatist says, well, just absolute theoretical problems, which are insoluble, and let's go with what is pragmatic, what works in society. It works in society to insist that that phone is black, and for a witness to insist that Jeremy Smith beats Kate's 
to death with a black phone in a certain apartment from across the way and that it was not a red phone it was a black phone and that the witness should insist that Jeremy did this in court without any equivocation without any doubt and with full force of conviction that a just conviction may be rendered in the case in fact whatever one's theoretical predispositions about epistemology in this sense and how to approach the problem of radical doubt that Descartes raised, pragmatism is important in places like the courthouse. Now, having said all that, it's just to illuminate the landscape of the theory of knowledge a little bit. In my forthcoming Animal Rights Ethics book, I'm going to try to show how the theory that I am defending can be defended from the point of view of a kind of foundationalism by which token we might be more confident of these moral foundations than we are the blackness of phone, although that sounds daring, and that also we can satisfy what I'm defending using a coherentist framework or a pragmatic framework, and that perhaps we make some progress in satisfying some of the skeptics, although uh, I foresee not all of them, that's only reasonable to foresee. I just want to stress how important what you're talking about is philosophically and how related foundationalism is to intuitionism. But by the same token, if you wanted to step back a bit from that theory of knowledge landscape, you could venture the idea that currentism is a kind of intuitionism, where you intuit a whole web of beliefs that support each other. And you could also say that pragmatism is a kind of intuitionism, where people intuit or assume what works. But that leads to a much more complicated discussion. Thank you, sir. I appreciate that. You're very welcome. I w I'd like to thank you for the great question. And also, I didn't get a chance to praise the AR zone early on, which I fully intended to do in looking forward to this chat. I just wanted to be thankful for all the hard work that you do. I understand there's stuff going on pretty much all the time, but big events every week at least, and I know it must be an awful lot of hard work, and you know, you reward a lot of people, and I believe too, animals with that work. It's been such a great forum for such a lot of, you know, important thinkers, activists, and so forth, and I feel embarrassed that I haven't participated more or researched out all the great transcripts that are there waiting for me to read. But I, I do... Yeah, sh shame, on, shame on you, David. Shame on you. <laughs> shame, on, shame on me. That's right. And, and I really look forward to reading those. And they would only be there because of all of your hard work. And I just wanted to say how much I appreciate that excellence and, I suppose, more or less permanent offering to the world. That's great. Thank you, David. And you're, you're, you're always welcome. Wel always welcome to participate in our zone when you find the time. Thank you. I'd like to ask a question now, if I could, about how the Jain principle of ahimsa, which means non-harm, has influenced you, David, and your advocacy. Professor Tom Reagan was also quite influenced by this principle back in the early 80s. I think you even authored the article on Jainism for the Encyclopedia of Animal Rights and Animal Welfare back in 1998. Would you like to speak briefly on why the principle of Ahimsa is an important part of your philosophy? Yes. Although my views have gone through various transmutations over the years, 
one of the steady streams in the evolution of my ideas has been this idea that we should avoid harm as the kind of the principal imperatives in ethics. And I was influenced by Jainism very early on, perhaps by happenstance, if it can be called that. After I read Animal Liberation, I was pretty much on my own. Uh, my sister Miriam, she wasn't an activist of any kind with respect to uh, vegetarianism or animal rights. But here I was coming onto the University of Toronto campus for the first time as a student. And, you know, here I was, a newbie, vegetarian and animal rights guy. And there was an info table from Canadian Vegans for Animal Rights. It's a now defunct group, but it was put on by wonderful activists, Joanne Schwab, a couple. And they did such great things, which I guess I shouldn't uh, go on about too much for the purposes of this interview. But they had a great friend named Bruce Costain. Bruce came from a very unlikely past where he was a hunter and really a tough guy, to put it euphemistically. You know, he has a lot of remorse about some things he did in the past. But here, suddenly I met him and Bruce was aspiring to be a Jain monk someone who takes ahimsa or nonviolence, you could say, uh, so seriously. And I met his, I don't know if she was his guru or what, but she was definitely his revered teacher. And I met a few other people that she inspired. And then I actually met some, um, you could call them ethnic Jains, people whose ancestry stems from South Asia, that part of the world in India. And they showed their caring, not only for non-human animals, but, you know, they, some friends of mine, the Janes, they would run a soup kitchen, you know, for the poor here in Toronto. So it made a huge impression on me. And you mentioned Tom Regan being influenced as well. As you know, I'm sure my interviewers probably know, uh, Regan was very active in the civil rights movement, marching along with Martin Luther King Jr., who was very influenced by Gandhi. Mohandas Gandhi, who's often referred to as Mahatma Gandhi. Mahatma means great soul. And uh, so Mohandas Gandhi um, really also influenced Regan quite directly. Um, Regan was an avid reader of, of Gandhi. And Gandhi himself was a, a Hindu. And for a good while, of his up to early adulthood at least, he was a ritual vegetarian, owing to, in particular, to his mother's Hindu vegetarianism. But Gandhi, of course, training to be an attorney in England, at that time he met, in one of these vegetarian restaurants, he, he met Henry Salt, who was one of the earliest animal rights thinkers. He wrote Animals' Rights in Relation to Social Progress, Salt did. And Salt convinced Gandhi to become an ethical vegetarian for the first time. So there's this tremendous Jain culture that goes back more than 5,000 years. And it is such a great heritage. I don't think that I've always done the best job of kind of acknowledging the ideological roots of my aversion to harm. I think now that with my more recent writing, I, I sort of took a cold reckoning of that and I, I, I thought they should be given more credit so I've tried to put that more front and center because really in the Western world non-harming or 
nonviolence. There's really no great genesis of that in Western tradition, especially in such a, an impartial and non-arbitrary way as, as I suppose the Jains. So I believe that Jainism is historically very important in the history of ideas. And I believe that, you know, this culture, this magnificent culture, you know, uh, writes themselves, they only go back to, let's say, uh, well, there was a term in ancient Rome that was roughly like it, that was part of its genesis, etymologically. But really, Emmanuel Kant was the father of rights in Western Eurocentric culture. And Kant was doing his, his main writing in the 17, what, 1789, 1790s especially. And so, you know, Kant only goes back like 10% or so of the time to back to the genesis of nonviolence in Jainism. It's only Kant is the youngster compared to the Jains. And Kant, of course, as the father of rights, is famous for his formula of humanity, which states that for any person, and he was thinking here of rational persons, that all rational persons shall be treated as ends in themselves. You think of exploitation and slavery, uh, just using people. But in a way, I think the significance of not instrumentalizing people relates to the harm that it causes to do this. So inasmuch as Kant is the father of rights, I think, in fact, that Jainism could possibly be the source of a more forthright and uh, important sense of rights. I think that Jainism is of ongoing importance, um, and I suppose that answers the question, unless you have any follow-up queries. That's wonderful. Thank you very much for your response. Thanks, Well, David, as you'd expect, I'm going to ask you a question, a sociological question, especially because you've written a couple of articles about um, what you described as liberation uh, sociology. And I'm tr going to try and keep the question short, but uh, I want to say a couple of things first, because you wrote in the Journal of Critical Animal Studies, which is now reproduced on your, your own blog. And the first part was called Normative Sociology, the in Intuitist uh, crisis and animals as absent reference. I, I'm struggling here because I've got, I've got a kitten uh, fighting <laughs> fighting with me. So that's <laughs> um, and part part two of that. I have a cat right beside <laughs> me here. I was determined to keep her off me during the course of the interview, but I had to give up on that one. <laughs> I, I I'm being tidged. You know, I have to look at my Facebook page to understand that reference. Uh, the part two uh, is called Animal Abs Absolutes Liberation Sociology's Missing Link. Now. One of the reasons why this came to mind is because I talked to you about this when you did your AI's own chat. But also I was teaching the culture industry thesis from Adorno and Horkheimer today. And you start your first part with a very kind of powerful account from Horkheimer, who you describe as an indirect Holocaust survivor. And then you give a very kind of passionate and very moving account of your own family situation in terms of the Holocaust. But in terms of the sociology then, and bearing in mind that Air Zone is not an academic 
audience and um, bearing in mind that I'm just a lowly part-time lecturer so I need some help as well <laughs> I'm just wondering whether there is a kind of quick and not too academic account that you can provide of your thoughts about normative sociology thank you for the question Roger it's a great question okay well without trying to uh, get too academic about it Brian Turner is a sociologist who wrote a book recently about human rights and sociology and Turner was very exercised by the fact that in the sociological tradition sociologists have tried to be value neutral or not normative except for basic things like not fudging the data and being honest and things like that which are necessary for any academic discipline pragmatically or otherwise. Turner was thinking, you know, what this really results in is a kind of weak relativism. We're unwilling to insist on any kind of standards at all. It's all culturally relative. This culture has this framework. This culture has another framework. The newer tribe in northern Africa, an ethnology was done of them in the 1950s. It was brought to light that the newer didn't consider killing other tribes people to be murder they considered it to be like the killing of animals. And so, you know, someone in the face of this, a sociological observer, can say, well, that's just the newer, you know, that's murder for them. But another person might say, no, it is murder, and we need to defend people if they're being abused or by the newer or anyone else who has violent kinds of tendencies, that we need to protect people against violence. So. The normative sociology question is about trying to be willing to stand up for certain norms in sociology, broad norms of a, an ethical nature, that we need to liberate uh, people of color, we need to liberate women, people of alternative sexual orientations, people suffering from age discrimination, and the whole lot of it. We really need that as an imperative in the discipline itself, not just as some kind of sideshow. And it's very difficult because Max Weber, one of the founders of sociology, was very much against standing for ethical norms as part of the discipline. He insultingly referred to anyone who tried to do so as a professorial prophet. That was his cute little phrase. He was a German. Excuse me, so that perhaps that was a translation, but nevertheless. So in that paper... I offer a new distinction between a positive normative sociologist and a negative normative sociologist. I made out Weber and his skeptical ilk to be in the negative normative sociology camp in the sense that they negate the idea that we should stand by strong norms and values in sociology. I'm a positive normative sociologist, which means I say we should have a positive presence of values and imperatives in sociology. So that's the distinction between positive and normative and negative normative sociology. And it tries to make all sociology seem normative, where even the Weberians, even those who dismiss these values and norms, they're also taking a normative stance. In fact, they're suggesting it should be the norm that we shouldn't uphold anti-racism as an absolute in sociology. That's their norm. So I'm just attempting to inject normativity into sociology, or even, if I may say, it's not me injecting it. I'm trying to suggest that a recognition 
of ethical imperatives, that there's something very reality-based about it. And that's why I, I kind of refer to animal absolutes, which has some poetic merit because animal absolutes, there's assonance there, ah, ah, but it's kind of an awkward phrase and I don't know, it's philosophically, it's not like a founding stone of my theory or anything. I was just trying to get across the idea that animals are a huge part of my uh, normative sociology and that I think absolutism is something that I gravitate towards. But as you've already gathered, I'm full of questions. They're ongoing. And if I'm an absolutist at all, it's with great caution and trepidation and ongoing questions. Well, yes, indeed. I, I think uh, in defense of Weber a, a little bit, I think that if if you go to the founding figures of sociology, there, there was a, a lot of um, stress in those days in the sense of establishing the discipline as a science. And, and Durkheim, really, I suppose, because he was the first professor of, of sociology, has got a lot to, to answer for as well, in the sense that uh, he's often regarded as a, as a positivist. Ironically, though, in terms of Weber, uh, because of his interpretivist stance, uh, that did lead to many of his students, or at least people in, influenced by him, forming the Chicago School. And I guess Howard Becker in particular, who is famous for asking sociologists, whose side are you on? And so they, they were actually criticized the, the Chicago School for taking a standpoint and for actually doing what was called underdog studies and the, the idea of all that critique of informed consent, all that critique of the scientific method and, and a lot of critique about um, researching the powerful and, and the, the idea that, you know, in terms of methodological ethics, that you, you, would, able, you would be able to do things if you're researching the powerful, which would be seen as unethical uh, when you're researching the powerless. In, in other words, you, you would fool them uh, in order to get access because, as we know, the socially powerful have got lots of kind of gatekeepers. So so there there is a kind of tradition uh, in sociology that, that is there uh, to be found. And I suppose the 1970s w was a big time for critical criminology and radical sociology. Uh, my own PhD supervisor was part and parcel of that and in fact that that was what uh, caused margaret thatcher when she came to power uh, in the 70s to try and close down sociology in the uk so there, there was a lot of kind of radicalism all the conflict theories and the you know the critical theories that came through uh, a new interest in the frankfurt school etc uh, etc et and lots of kind of different versions of neo-marxism so it it is there to be found i think so yeah it's an inter interesting take on that and um are you planning on pursuing your sociological interest there, or do you think that's the extent of what you wanted to say? Well, I was teaching in a sociology department at Brock University in St. Catharines, Ontario, Canada, and I was teaching there for two years. I taught eight courses there, and I uh, came up with the papers uh, while I was teaching there, so I was kind of had my head in the sociology uh, part of academic thought at the time. I do have a rough draft of a manuscript with a lot more research authors going into much more depth and so on. And I'd like to find the time to develop that manuscript into a proper book. But I don't know if I will ever have the opportunity or the luxury of doing so. Well, hopefully you will. Thanks, Roger. And thanks also 
for lending so much illumination to the strains in sociology that are very normatively oriented. And yes, there's a rich history there. David, just to follow up briefly on the sociological talk that's going on, I read through some of the uh, article that you and Roger have been talking about that you wrote, and you mentioned David Nyberg's name. Um, And I also remember seeing that I believe that you talk about the economic system and how that works against animal rights. And, of course, that's a big part of what David Nybert wrote about in his, in his book. I'm assuming you're familiar with his work, and do you agree with him when he, with his criticism of capitalism and the entanglement theory that he has? I think that the name is actually David Niebert, and oh. uh, he, yeah, he teaches at University of Wittenberg, and I forget what state in the United States that's based in. I've met him uh, at Brock University. It's this incredible culture of animal sociology going on there. That's why I had the privilege of being there, even though I have a philosophy PhD, so it was a bit of a bizarre fit. But Dr. Niebert uh, has come to more than one of the great conferences there, organized by uh, Professor John Sorensen, who really pioneered animal sociology at Brock. So I met Dr. Niebert, and I've seen him present, and I've read his book, what is it, Humans Slash Animal Rights, Entanglements of Oppression and Liberation, something like that. And uh, I was very impressed with the book. In his early part of the book, he talks about how indebted he is to normative ethical theorists, such as Regan and others. He's very inspired by them. So I, I'm entirely on side with Niebert saying that you know we should follow the money and uh, look at the economic nature of exploitation, human and other, that it's an extremely important dimension. And obviously there's an alignment, at least to some extent, with Marx in this sort of thinking. And I think that kind of materialist emphasis is apropos and accurate, and it helps to penetrate to some of the critical core of sociological problems. Where I might uh, hesitate a bit is that Niebert, I'm afraid, and perhaps I'm wrong, but I'm afraid that Dr. Niebert is perhaps a bit too materialistic for to describe my own view, that he tends to say that we should look to materialism kind of in bold, underline and in italics, and he tends to consider ideas to be not really as important, whereas with me, I would take more of a complementary approach, complementary to him, because I really respect his work, but complementary um, idealism and materialism in a kind of a complementary pair, to acknowledge the importance of ideas and thinking and theory about ethics and things like that. Again, acknowledging that his own debt to people like Regan, right? He's not dismissive of that. As well as the materialist emphasis on, you know, Marxist critique of economics and look, we don't have ethical education to any significant extent in Western society. So people grow up kind of very materialistically uh, you know, they, they're, they're groomed to have jobs and they're all this sort of thing, which is very materialistic. So, you know, I think part of the materialistic nature of society where people just want jobs and they just want to buy their things and there's this horrible 
advertising culture that wants people to accumulate far more things than our planet can sustain. I mean, I think that's a real sickness. And look, Niebert is looking at that and criticizing it, and I applaud him. Our members tend to you know, like to ask very kind of practical levels, you know, what, what should we be doing kind of question. Maybe in the in the grassroots, where I'm not, yeah. not necessarily thinking about the organization, I'm thinking about on the grassroots level perhaps. Well, I think in every city around the world, we need to have people doing vegan animal rights education. I think we need to be getting out into the streets, having these video display units, paying people a dollar to watch Meet Your Meat or From Farm to Fridge or one of the films, so many of the films that people need to see. We need to burst cocoons that people are in uh, so that there can be these butterflies everywhere of vegans and animal rights people because people are in these cocoons and it's horrifying that along with the tremendous animal abuse both qualitatively and quantitatively there's this horrible ignorance the two are linked so Gandhi himself said that nonviolence and truth are linked and in fact presuppose one another I think that's right I think that Violence very often thrives because people are ignorant about it. They cover it up. They call it using euphemisms. They say, oh, I'm not being violent to animals. I'm just exercising my free rights as a consumer or something, painting the picture pretty. And it's disgusting because there is real violence involved. So we need education to burst that bubble. I think that although I do believe in physical defense of the innocent, uh, I think we need to be non-violent in our approach, that violence will not really get us anywhere uh, constructive. That's my take on it. I'd like to write more about that in the future. It was approved for publication in the journal Ethics and the Environment uh, on violence, non-violence. And then I realized that my thought was just too much in flux, that there was much more I wanted to say. So. I withdrew the article, and I'm still thinking about those matters. Yeah, I also think that, I know this is very controversial, of course, but I think that we need to push for abolishing speciesism and, you know, needless violence. Um, but at the same time, we've sunk so low as a humanity, so low that there's things like factory farming and so on. and. I think before we have an animal rights society, there's a lot of potential for what I would call macro-incremental changes. I know some people say, you know, we can't or it wouldn't be significant, but I can't help but think that torture, every kind, is very significant to the animals. And I wouldn't want us to miss the opportunity to aim for macro-incremental changes. I'm opposed to micro-incrementalism would be which is worse than nothing at all. A micro-incrementalist, it would be like the Animal Welfare Act that was worked on in the United States, and it seems like the results made it seem that there was progress, but the bottom line was the animal exploitation industries had a stranglehold on the process, and the end result was that it's not clearly better for animals and it's just better for the exploiters. That's micro-incremental change and I couldn't be more passionately opposed to that kind of thing. But I think we have great potential for something much more 
changing and something that opposes the speciesism aspect of cruelty and torture. We have the right not to be tortured and so do the animals and I don't think we have the full animal rights approach without firmly upholding the right not to be tortured to the maximum possible extent or if we can generalize along the lines of some of my more recent essays and Jainism and this great nonviolence tradition, I think we should protect animals from violence as much as we can. Well, yes, indeed. And uh, I do like that distinction between um, micro-incrementalism and macro-incrementalism. That's, that's, um, that's a very interesting idea. Thanks, um, it does beg the question ab about if we do accept that there's going to be macro-incrementalism along the way, it begs the question about whether we need to actually focus on that or whether we would expect by advocating for a for the liberation of non-humans that that means that they would come along along the way itself so i don't think anybody is not expecting there to be incremental change it's a question of whether we we are the ones who need to actually specify what changes we're talking about or just let it kind of happen as change uh, develops as we maintain our claims about um what would be just in terms of other animals? That's a great question or point, Roger. I think that we really need to be activists about this macro-incrementalist change as an animal rights community. Uh, a, because it's the duty of justice to animals, I think, to minimize violence towards each and every one of them. And B, if we take more of a passive observer stance, instead activating in other ways, such as only vegan education and so on, I think that the speciesists are very half-assed about uh, legislative reform. And if we just leave it to the speciesists, the uh, dog and cat lovers only and that kind of thing, they're going to come up with weak legislation. It's going to be micro-incrementalists because they don't care enough about, they don't take animals' interests fully seriously. Um, it, someone like me who wants to abolish factory farming and then says, well, let's go all the way after that and just kill the meat industry altogether by withdrawing all support from it, all life support as it were, for this death industry. That's very different. I take animals' interests far more seriously than the traditional welfareist who would say, well, they don't have the right to life, you know, and you know, if you don't have the right to life, then there isn't a very serious recognition of interest. So I don't trust them. I don't think they would do a good enough job and I think if anyone suggests that we have to do vegan education or legislative work, not both, I think that we have a vast enough movement, a growing enough movement to support both forms of activity. I don't think every person needs to do both. And in fact, some people would not be suited well to legislative work. You know, probably most people wouldn't be. So people do what they're best at, what their interests converge on and their, their aptitudes. And I, I'm not about to dictate what people should do, you know, um, but I think that that macro-incrementalist legislation plus no-nonsense, animal rights, non-violent uh, education is also, uh, that, that, there, that it's all, we should avoid the game of trying to poo-poo one approach or the other and instead build to being a much stronger movement that's stronger for animals and their claim to non-violence, which is so fragile and weak in this world.
I was recently appointed as a research fellow with the University of Vienna, which is doing very important work in animal rights education. They're working on another, something very like the Encyclopedia of Animal Rights and Animal Welfare, which was edited by the wonderful uh, scholar and activist Mark Beckoff. And in fact, Dr. Beckoff is helping the Austrians with this project. And, you know, they asked me, uh, would you be willing to serve on our editorial board? So even though I feel like I need to do a lot with my writing, and that's one of the reasons why I'm not more active in AR Zone and other places, although, you know, I, I'd like to be. I wanted to help them too, so I did sign on as an editorialist. And then uh, it came to my attention that they were organizing a conference for 2013 down the road on the work, the animal rights ethics work of Tom Regan. So I thought, well, that's great. And as you know, I've been, well, as you may or may not know, I've been working on this animal rights ethics book of mine forever. A respectful critique of Regan is definitely a part of it where, you know, I praise the scope of his inquiry and the importance of his ideas. And as I was saying earlier, I have a lot of admiration for intuitionists who are willing to stand their ground, in effect, against violence. To so there's a lot of admiration for Regan. But I figured, well, why don't I just send these people the section of my chapter on the rights uh, the section on Regan's work, you know, just for their interest. I sent it along. Evidently, it elicited a very positive, because the next day, they offered me an appointment as a research fellow, and the chance to speak at this conference in 2013 as a guest speaker on Regan's philosophy. So that's what it is so far. The nature of the research fellowship is in a process of developing beyond that, but it'll take some time. I'm very grateful to the scholars and activists in Vienna who made possible this opportunity. And uh, I can't say enough how grateful I am for that. Congratulations on that, David. Thank you. Thank you. I'm a huge fan of Tom Reagan's work as well. I think he's wonderful. Oh, yes. I, uh, I love the man's work. And he's come to Toronto a number of times. And he's just one of the best speakers, too. Mm -hmm and the clarity that he achieves and what comes across, the humanity of how he speaks, his very manner. I love it. And I've seen him speak in the States too. And I'm really indebted to him too, in terms of the development of my work. When my work in ethical theory was very primitive and sophomoric, I was entering the university system for the first time and then you know, developing with some crude ideas of my own. Regan was there advancing some very important pioneering ideas that have been a real reference point to me and thousands of others who are thinking about these issues. And we were talking earlier about how Singer seems a bit weak about veganism, or at least not as strong as we would like. Well, Regan has always been really strong about these issues. He's always been really strong about harm. Part of the case for animal rights well, there's this intuition that animals, meaning normal mammals of at least one year in age, that animals should have 
inherent value, Regan says, and that this means the respect principle, a kind of respect for them, and it means the harm principle. That's what Regan calls it, where obviously you're predisposed to protect animals against harm. I think it would have been better to call it the non-harming principle or something like that, but he didn't for whatever reason, and he wasn't like me in some of my earlier writing, he wasn't as forthcoming about the indebtedness of his harm principle to Jainism, right? It didn't come out in the case for animal rights. In some of his other writing, though, he did uh, he did say that, you know, again, the death of the family dog awakened his heart to be vegetarian, and he was always very influenced by Gandhi, right? But somehow it never came out very explicitly this history of ideas business through Gandhi and his Hinduism to Jainism and the nonviolent principle that they espouse. It could have come across more clearly from Dr. Regan, but what did come across was beautiful, eloquent, inspiring, incredible in its breadth. I read so many academic studies of animal rights ethics that don't cover all the theoretical ground that Regan does. He talks about ethical egoism, and utilitarianism and you know a lot of uh, singers writing is very superficial in its coverage of the different ethical theories Um, a lot of these studies are very limited in their theoretical coverage and when they do talk about the theories you know I I have qualms about the coverage and I could grouse a lot but (laughs) I liked as you can tell I like to balance out my grousing with uh, gratitude and appreciation for what these various scars offer. Absolutely, I completely agree with you on Reagan. Yes, and actually, when you were talking about Singer being superficial, I think, uh, ironically, that's the reason why his theory became more popular in the sense, well, obviously, it was first, and so there was a, an issue there in the sense of who, who got in first. But also, the case is much more difficult to read than Animal Liberation. Mm-hmm. And so, consequently, that, that would explain uh, quite a lot. Just as an aside, you, you've mentioned Gandhi a lot, and um, I'm sure you're aware of the the thing that um, Gandhi came to England in uh, in the 1950s, and he met off the plane, and the the person said, you know, hello, Mr. Gandhi, you know, what do you think of British civilization? And uh, Gandhi said, yes, I think it'd be a good idea. <laughs> I love that. I love that exchange. Yeah, in uh, in my online essay. Uh, veganism versus violence i have a little quote box where i have that I, I love that roger i love it and you're right you know the simplistic nature of singer is, explains a lot of the great popularity of his approach you know it meshes more or better with the general audience type audience but that's done a lot of good too because he's reached a lot of people and singer as i was saying earlier is a a great model of lucidity and so on, but there's always this tension in the general audience and the academic audience, and sometimes people feel this great sense of urgency, and they should try to address both at once and so on, and I think you can keep a bit of a middle ground that way. David, would you like to give the address for your blog site where people can read Veganism vs. Violence? Oh, I would be very happy to, and thank you for asking. You can find my website in general by typing my name into Google, which is David Stiebel. It's S as in Sam, Z, T as in Tom, Y as in Bob, E as in Edith, L as in Larry. 
From there, you'll see that there's buttons for general audience work, academic audience work. I link to videos that I think are helpful for our movement. There's a little bio. Um, there's a little bit about what I could offer potentially as a speaker. There's a link to my blog. Uh, if you want to access veganism versus violence, the long version, I will give the following address, http colon forward slash forward slash stibel s is in sam z t is in tom y b is in bob e is in edith l is in larry period tripod like a camera tripod spelled uh, t r i p is in peter o d is in david period com c o m as in martha forward slash capital v veganism dot pdf capital v veganism dot p pdf http colon forward slash forward slash stibel dot tripod dot com forward slash veganism dot pdf with a capital v in veganism fantastic we can link to it from our zone as well thank you so much i'm so pleased to hear that idea you're very welcome I'd just like to ask one question because it, it's a question that we've that we've asked a number of our guests and if you don't mind David I'd like to ask you when you think forward and imagine if you can the movement or the state of the world <laughs> um, 50 years or 100 years from now what do you think we'll see I think that we will continue to see progress on many fronts uh, with animals but I think we're gonna have to contend with a lot of grim reality still. I think that uh, the percentage of vegans and vegetarians in the Western society is going to go up for a while, I think, in the so-called third world or developing countries. That's not a very satisfactory phrase, developing countries. But I think in a lot of these other non-Western contexts, you're going to see more animal consumption and factory farming, which has already started in places in Asia and so on. But I think that eventually we'll catch up to that too, and that nonviolent culture is eventually going to achieve a conscience in world affairs. But I also think that there's competing forces and that the forces of violence will also grow in many ways and provoke many crises. Crises including food shortages of a more exacerbated nature perhaps more medical problems like epidemics and so on, wars to compete for strength on your organizing group knows. Um, a lot of war is caused by um, resource depletion caused by animal agriculture. It ca that causes us to double petroleum consumption. It uses perhaps a third of all raw resources, half of all fresh water, 95% of oats grown in the U.S. go to animal feed and so forth. So th this is going to lead to more and more problems and health problems for humans. People are going to start to become more honest and forthright about that and realize that meat eaters get 40% more cancer, according to the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. And I have a 3% chance of dying of a heart attack, but the meat eaters have maybe 30%, according to the World Health Organization. So... We're going to see progress, but it's not going to be easy progress. We're going to see micro-incrementalist legislation that will rightly 
caused many animal rights people to become in like we'll see more macro incrementalist stuff too. We've started to see initiatives against factory farming measures in the US, Tim, and your your own country. I understand you're in Gainesville, Florida. And I think we'll see more progress. I understand that the author of the book Dominion actually start pioneered some anti-factory farming measures in your own state of Florida. That's great. I think it should continue. It makes me very sad to think that even after these so-called macro-incrementalist changes, that's my own term, it's depressing that even after what I call macro-incrementalist changes, like abolishing factory farming, even after that happens, animals are still enslaved. They're still killed. You know, there's still this not really their interest seriously. I, I don't believe any meat eater really takes their interest seriously. I hope that addresses your question. Thanks, David. Sure. David, I'd like to thank you on behalf of AR Zone sincerely for spending your time with us today. I've thoroughly enjoyed the discussion. Thank you very much for being here. Well, thank you. Uh, I had a, an opportunity for enjoyment and uh, sharing of thought peers as well, and I, I, I love that kind of discussion. I think that this kind of discussion is very rare in the materialist kind of society I was alluding to earlier, where there is no real ethics education. People are just left to the default, and I'm afraid that, that the default is ignorance, ignorance and violence. Yes, thank you, David. Thank you.